Welcome to Trinity Presbyterian Church Owasso Sermon Podcast. Grace changes everything. There's a legendary story that's told in evangelical circles that is um, often tossed around about a letter that was written in the early 1900s by the London Times by the editors who wrote a question seeking responses. And the question was, what is wrong with the world? And the legend goes that the British apologist G.K. Chesterton was one of the many responders who wrote. And he wrote back to the editors of the London Times and he said, Dear sirs, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. Now, the real story is just as profound, but it's not as succinct. The real story is that G.K. Chesterton responded to a letter that was written by the Daily News by someone who called himself a heretic. And the anonymous letter questioned, what is wrong with the world? And invited readers to then respond, to which Chesterton was one of the many people over the coming months who wrote back an answer to this question. And in 1905, on August the 16th, in the Daily News, he wrote his own letter, and he titled, What's Wrong? And this is what he actually wrote. In one sense, and in that eternal sense, the thing is plain. The answer to the question, what is wrong, is or should be, I am wrong. Until a man can give that answer, his idealism is only a hobby. (laughs) Now that longer quote doesn't pack the same punch that dear sirs I am, sincerely yours G.K. Chesterton does, but it does make the same point. And David in Psalm 53 is making the point that who among us is righteous? No one. No, not one. In fact, it was this very passage that Paul picked up where David refers to just the Gentiles in this passage. Paul picks up and says to both Jews and to Greeks, to both Jews and to Gentiles, to everybody around the world, who is righteous? There is no one who is righteous, he says in Romans chapter 3, verse 9. No, not one. And if we're going to understand the fool's denial, if we're going to understand the depth of the foolish heart, then we have to see two points that David tries to make in this passage. I'll call these points points of perspective about wisdom. Point number one, there is ground floor wisdom. Look at verse one with me in your bulletin or in your Bible. It says, the fool says in his heart, there is, is no God. Now, there are three words for the word fool in Hebrew. This one is Nabal or Nabal. It's the story, of course, it refers back to the story of Nabal, who is Abigail's husband. And Psalm 53 is put after Psalm 52 and before Psalm 54, which speak of concrete events in David's life. And it's interesting that as Nathan Duke taught us last week in Psalm 52, it says that when David was with Doeg the Edomite, and he came and told Saul that David has come 
to the house of Ahimelech. And in Psalm 54, if you read the top, it says, that the scribal edition, it says, that when the Ziphites went and told Saul. So in 1 Samuel, if you go there after worship, or even now as I preach, if you look at 1 Samuel 22 and 23, it's the story of Doeg. And what's the story in 1 Samuel chapter 26? It's the story of the Ziphites. What is right between those two? The story of a fool whose name is Nabal. And so the placement of this psalm, scholars say, might have been that when David experienced Nabal not giving shelter to his men after they had been gracious to him. Now, the word for fool, when you read it here, Nabal, connotes the understanding that um, we don't think in terms of, of, uh, of atheists like we think today, when he says, there is no God. In the ancient Near East, when somebody said there is no God, it wasn't that they were atheistic because nobody could imagine in the ancient Near East somebody would not believe in gods. It wasn't even a concept that they considered. Everybody believed in gods. There is no God here refers to the fact that they act as though there is no God. They act unwisely. Notice what it says in verse 1b. They are corrupt. They, are, they do abominable iniquity. The psalm is almost exactly the same as Psalm 14, except for verse 5. And in verse 14, it says they do abominable deeds. Nabal is described as one who did unjust deeds in 1 Samuel chapter 25. So ground floor wisdom teaches us that at our best, with no other reference point, we act as though there is no God. Because we are our own gods. Calvin says, David does not bring against his enemies the charge of common foolishness, but rather inveighs against the folly and the insane hardihood of those whom the world would account eminent for their wisdom. There's a lot of smart fools out there. And there are people, including me and including you, as this psalm teaches, who operate so much of our life as though we really didn't believe in God. That's what the ancient Near East atheism is trying to connote. They say in their heart. Notice they say it in their heart. They don't say it with their mouth. They think it. It goes to the deep driving motivations of their life. They act in a way that says, I am an island unto myself. I am my own God. Now, David in this psalm is talking about Gentiles. Notice in verse two, he says, God looks down from, the, from heaven on the children of man. Children of man in this context refers to the Gentile nations around him. Notice in verse four, I know I'm making you look around the verse, but stay with me, it's important. Notice in verse four, he says, who eat up all my people. My people are the Jews, the children of man. Doesn't refer to everybody in this context. It refers to the Gentile nations around David. And there's a lot of different ways that we can be foolish, driven by the motives of our heart. We think sometimes that the bad stuff is out there. It lives in the Gentile lands. It lives in the lands apart from us. That really, if we could somehow just separate us, if somehow, if we could just deal with the problems that are across the street or that are across the tracks or that are across the aisle or that are across the ocean, 
then we'd really be able to solve our problems. But David doesn't let you off the hook. David doesn't let you off the hook because it says in verse two, not only is there a ground floor kind of wisdom that says you can only decide things based upon your line of sight. And on the ground floor, you can't see in front of the heads in front of you. You can't see what's going on. There has to be, point number two, a balcony wisdom. And notice what he says in verse two. God looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. The only way that we can actually begin to know what's right and wrong is if we recognize there is one who has a balcony wisdom. And here's a memo. You don't. Balcony wisdom means that God can see the whole shebang. He can see everything. He orchestrates all things by his sovereign decree through his works of creation and through providence. And our children know if they've learned the shorter catechism that God's providence is his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing of all his creatures and all their actions. Well, people will say, well, if that's true, then why doesn't God just call all of us to believe in him? Well, because God allows you the freedom to live according to your nature. And many reject him and want nothing to do with him. But God sees from the balcony upon all the lives of men and he provides for us what is true truth. And he says, David says, God sees if there are any who understand to seek after him. And he says, they have all fallen away together. Even when we get together in a community or a nation or a state or an organization or a club, we have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. In G.K. Chesterton's letter in the Daily Mail, Chesterton makes the point that even though we are believers, we are freed from the guilt and from the penalty of our sin because of Jesus' death on the cross for us. But we are not freed from its power, are we? And if you're a Christian here, when you read this verse, it's easy to see how Paul came back to Psalm 53 into Psalm 14, and he pulled out this part when he was describing the plight of all of mankind. There are none of us who do good, not even one. And if you're here and you're not a believer, it's tempting to think that, well, an inherent belief in God doesn't prove that God is true. Well, that's, of course, that's true, but it does hint at it, doesn't it? When C.S. Lewis was an atheist, he rejected the idea of a divine being because of all of the injustice that he saw in the world. But when he asked himself where he'd gotten the idea of injustice itself, he, said he had a problem. He says, man doesn't call a line crooked unless he has some idea of what it means to be a straight line. Lewis writes, when I was comparing the universe with what I called unjust. I had realized that I had nothing to compare it to except one who truly knows what justice is. Friends, we are not able to call things good or bad unless there is a balcony kind of wisdom. And it is one of the deepest challenges of the Christian life to be able to gain this kind of balcony wisdom, not by becoming God, but by looking to God. If you have a pen, I just want to encourage you to write four ways that you gain wisdom as a Christian. 
These are not in the text, but they're implied by it because David is writing this to give us wisdom. There are none who seek good. No, not one. But how are we as God's covenant people to gain wisdom? He says there are are four things in scripture. Number one, that when you are making an ethical decision about what is wise, there are four things that come together to help you begin to see above the ground floor and to gain balcony wisdom. And the first one is to pray. Sounds churchy, doesn't it? But do you do it? Not so churchy anymore. Prayer. Number two is you study God's word. You search the scriptures to find what the biblical passages and their principles might say that are relevant to this particular situation. Number three, you don't just pray and study God's word. Some people stop there. You can't. You have to study the situation. Because every situation has variables and uniquenesses that are different from the others. Study the situation. Gather facts. Because it is often impossible to make a wise decision until facts about the situation become more clear. In fact, most disagreements between human beings come because the facts are not agreed upon or are not clear in their conversation. And four, you have to study the people. So you pray You study God's word. You study the situation to gain the facts. And you study the people. You understand the character, the motives, the value, the people that are involved or that are affected by the decision to be made. And lastly, you have to understand the goal. The goal, a bonus, there's a fifth. The goal of any ethical decision is that you have to understand that you are doing this not merely for your good, but for the good of your neighbor and for the glory of God. And so let's make an ethical decision. It's late at night. Guys in the room, over 70% of men in the church struggle with pornography. It's late at night. You're bored and you're really tempted to look at porn. What's the goal? Is it for the good of your marriage? For the good of your neighbor? For the good of the community? Or is it for you? Listen, walking in wisdom as believers of the Lord Jesus is so important because you know what people say when they look at the church today? They say, I don't see much difference. I go to work at this manufacturing plant with this other buddy who calls himself a Christian and he seems to be stressed out about money just like I am. It is really interesting to me that when we think about Paul's own awareness of himself in scripture. In the session meeting this week, we were talking about this together. You know, when Paul was converted in Acts chapter nine, he was knocked off of his high horse, literally in Acts nine, six. And, and he remembered Jesus, knocks him, says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he says, who are you, Lord? And he says, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting. And he goes to Damascus for three years. And then he comes back and he, he writes on his first missionary journey, the book of Galatians in AD 49, thereabout. In the second missionary journey, he writes First and Second Thessalonians. And then Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when he's in prison. He writes this astounding statement of self-disclosure to the church and he says to them, By the grace of God, I am what I am. For I am the least of the apostles. 
unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. He writes that about AD 60. He's growing older. He's growing more mature. He's growing wiser. Two years later, what does he write? Well, two years later in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 8, he writes, he's two years older. He says, to me, though, I am the very least of all the saints. So notice the progression. First he says, I'm the least of the apostles. Now he's older and he says, I'm the least of the saints. Interesting, isn't it? And then later he writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15. He says, this saying is trustworthy and true, O members of Trinity, O guests, all those who listen and hear, deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Do you see the transition in Paul's life from understanding himself as a persecutor of God? He is growing more and more holy, no doubt, by his outward actions, but he recognizes the depth of his heart is actually darker the older that he gets. I'm the least of the apostles. I'm the least of the saints. Then he says, to the end of his life, when he's the oldest and most mature, he says, I am the chief of sinners. Now, is that true of you? Paul understands his heart in a way as he grows older that is deeper. And therefore, he understands his heart as, in fact, darker. Even though his actual life, he's not killing Christians anymore. And by every outward standard, Paul was an amazing display of what a Christian ought to be. And so if you can imagine with me, if you were to draw on your paper, you were to draw an eyeball, draw an eyeball, and then draw a 45-degree angle going up and going down. And on the downward trajectory, you would write, my awareness of sin. The depth of sin in my own heart. And in the upward trajectory, you would write God's grace to me. And as you grow in the Christian life, you see both of those things together growing higher and deeper. Both God's grace growing more beautiful than when you first understood it and also the depth of your sin growing deeper because you're becoming more self-aware. And then what connects those two lines? It's always the cross of Jesus, which as you get older, gets bigger in your life as you progress. Do you see how the diagram works? The cross gets bigger for us. And so as we grow in the Christian life, we can say grace abounds all the more. Yes, because I'm a sinner saved by grace. And so if anybody's in this room and you've been to church for the first time in a long time, we wanna say welcome. Welcome to a room full of sinners who are struggling to yield the whole of their life, everything about us. We're trying to yield to King Jesus. And progress is the key because some of us are changing with great speed and others of us are just inching along year by year by year. But we're making progress, so be encouraged. And one of the most helpful things about the doctrine of total depravity. The idea that you are not as sinful as you could be, but you are shot through with sin in all of your faculties. One of the most 
encouraging things about total depravity, if we can use that word encouraging, is that that doctrine equips you to be a better, that is a deeper analyst of contemporary problems. G.K. Chesterton did it when he said that I am the problem. If any man thinks otherwise, his idealism is just a hobby, but it's not grounded in reality. Let me give you, let me give you three other benefits of believing in the doctrine of total depravity. Number one, it equips you to be a better and deeper thinker about society's problems. That's the first one. Let me give you three more. Number two, the doctrine of total depravity sets healthy expectations of others and it deepens relationships. It sets healthy expectations of others and it deepens relationships. Why? Because when you get two sinners in a room, there's gonna be fireworks. But when you understand that it is repentance that is the oil that runs this engine of this household or of this organization or of this church, then we're able to set healthy expectations of each other. Yes, we hold each other accountable. Yes, we expect people to lead well. Yes, we expect people to follow through on their commitments. Of course, of course, of course. But there's also forgiveness. There's a healthy sense that though we are freed from the guilt and the penalty of our sin, we're not yet freed from its power. The third, the doctrine of total depravity draws us continually to the cross because it's only in the cross where we can find our freedom. Number four, the doctrine of total depravity directs us to receive the wisdom and the counsel of others. I already mentioned this morning, Hebrews 10, 25, don't neglect meeting together as some or in the habit of doing but encourage one another all the more as we see the great day approaching. Our job is to encourage each other, whether it's in community groups or it's just in life and in friendship, to encourage each other, to pour into each other, to point each other to the beauty of the gospel. Because guys, listen, there is no one in this room, no one in this room who doesn't profoundly need the grace of God every week of their life. In fact, those who actually are the ones who recognize they need it are the ones who are growing the way that God intends us to grow. Now we could go through the rest of the psalm and we can take it and we can see the consequences of those who have no fear of God, who don't believe in God. It says in verse five that they are in terror, in great terror where there's no terror. In other words, they jump at everything because they're radically insecure and they're unmoored. They change their ethical standard quickly because they jump at people's opinion of them. And it says, for God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You, it's referring now to you, O covenant people of God, that God will protect you from those who bite and seek to devour you. And some of you need to hear this this morning because there are those of you at work who have people who you feel like are trying to bite and devour you. And God will scatter their bones. That is that God will take all those who didn't look to him and he will judge them and he will deliver his people. You put them to shame. How do you put them to shame? You put them to shame by your wisdom. You put them to shame by the fact that you are the one who's first to repent in that boardroom, in that factory, in that place, in that home. And then lastly, David can say, oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. 
when God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice and let Israel be glad. How, David, dare we ask, how in the world can we rejoice and be glad when there is none who are righteous, no, not one? When God scatters the bones of those who encamp against your covenant people, how can we rejoice? We can rejoice because God doesn't just look down upon us now, does he, in verse two. He doesn't just look down upon us, but he came down to be with us. God doesn't just leave us to our ground floor kind of wisdom, but he provides for us balcony wisdom. Why? Because he implants in us his Holy Spirit to give us wisdom, true wisdom, which comes from him. Jesus did not consider equality a thing with God to be grasped. He didn't stay in the balcony, but he came to the ground floor where we were destroying ourselves and he lived among us as one of us. God came down in the person of his son and he lived with us. True wisdom, the true, the beautiful, and the good, and he came for you. So that later Paul would be able to write a thousand years later, there are none who do good, no, not one, but thanks be to God for the gift that is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ who allows us to gain true wisdom, who allows us to be able to grow truly wise, and who allows us to read Psalms like Psalm 53 and not be discouraged by them, but to take heart because salvation for Israel would come down out of Zion and did in Christ. And so church, let us rejoice and let us be glad because the more that we comprehend the weight and extent of our sinfulness, the better that we can grasp the magnitude and the scope of God's forgiveness and grace that's at work in our life. To those of you who are a seeker, sin is not a disease to be cured. It is a condition from which to be saved. And to the Christian, I would say, with the greater awareness of your need for grace comes the greater experience of joy. You cannot cure the sin problem because Jesus was the only one who came to provide the solution. You can't do it. But Christ provided it for us. And so therefore, with us, let us grow in wisdom. And let us look at Jesus, who is the one who truly had a good end in mind. He came to bring glory to his Father, and he came to reconcile us to one another and to him. He is the only one who came with a true good ethic, a pure motive, he understood the fool's denial and yet he went right into it and he said, I will give my life. I won't just say it with my mouth. I will speak it in my heart and I will live it out in my incarnation as I give myself for the sins of the world. So friends, as you face your navels this week, I said navels, not navels, thank you. <laughs> your fools understand their tendency to deny the existence of God or any standard outside of themselves. And also understand that Jesus came to make us wiser together for his glory so we might be able to navigate the ways of the world in a way that's fiercely honest. And with G.K. Chesterton, we might be able to say, what is wrong with the world? And in working toward a solution as Jesus' hands and feet, we might all together be able to say, I am. Let's pray together.